you would take your Bible and turn to Psalm 148. Psalm 148. Well, we've been dealing with the topic of worship uh, for some time now. What worship is, how we should worship, where we should worship, and on and on and on. Tonight, we are going to deal with the who of worship, because that is what Psalm 148 speaks to. And really, the conclusion of this psalm is that every ounce of creation, every even the inanimate objects in creation, the sun and the moon and the stars, the hail, the snow, clouds, mountains, hills, um, the cedars, everything should bring worship before the living God. Derek Kinder says, starting with the angelic host and descending through the skies to the varied forms and creatures of the earth, then summoning the family of man, and finally the elect of God, the call to praise unites all of creation in Psalm 148. Roy Clements, a pastor in England, said this, The psalmist explores just about every area of human knowledge to catalog the potential members of the cosmic congregation. He begins in the field of cosmology with the angels, stars, and waters above the skies. Then, when he has satisfied himself that he has exhausted the celestial realm, he turns to the terrestrial, marine biology, great sea creatures, and all ocean depths, meteorology, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, geomorphology, uh, mountains, hills, and ultimately the trees, zoology, uh, wild animals, cattle, small creatures, and flying birds. And to cap it all, he deals with the political, geographic, sociological, and anthropological realities of creation and exclaims that it should all sing praises to God. This psalm calls all of us tonight to worship in spirit and in truth. So if you would, with that in mind, stand to do honor to the reading of God's inerrant word. The psalmist here in Psalm 148, in these 14 verses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest of heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And He has established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling His Word, mountains and hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all people, 
princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people, praised for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near Him. Praise the Lord. Would you pray with me, beloved? Father God, we come into Your presence tonight thankful for these words, thankful for the reminder that everything that You have created is rightly called to give You the glory that is due Your name. And Father, we come tonight acknowledging the reality that far too often we live our lives in such a way that we don't bring You glory. We live with ourselves on the throne. Would You throw us down from the throne and be exalted in our living? Would You instruct and write these truths on all of our hearts for Your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the first place that the psalmist looks is upward. And he sees two entities that urge us to praise God. First, he deals with the angels. There has always been a tendency of human beings to worship angels either fallen or unfallen, rather than God. And one thing that you're going to see as we move throughout the psalm tonight is that there is this reality as we walk through Psalm 148 that that all of creation should ultimately praise God, but far too often we, in our idolatrous fallen state, flip that reality, and instead of joining in with creation, we worship the creation. And and here's the reality. Pagan worshipers uh, were constantly worshiping false idols. And we've dealt with that in 1 John chapter 5, haven't we, for some time now, that John tells us to keep ourselves from idols. And I really think that Psalm 148 is uh, cauterizing the people of God against idolatry in... uh, pushing us away from uh, the pagan world. Um, What we find, if we really were to dig in even deeper to 1 John chapter, uh, or excuse me, 1 John, the background of um, Gnosticism there is these aren't just idolatrous people in a nebulous sense, but they had a very specific line of thinking uh, and we dealt with that at some length, that they, they had a special knowledge. And part of that special knowledge was that there was one being that emanated into other beings, and then ultimately beyond all of that was, was the one who created things, and then beyond those emanations are, um, are individual uh, people. And those emanations are the special the worship of those emanations. So if you have a God here and there's an emanation that comes from Him and then another and another and another, it stands to reason in their particular system that you worship each one of these emanations, these different gods, in proportion to how close they are to the original. And so the, the Gnostic heresy is really the, this teaching of an entire system of worshiping differently according to the God that you have in front of you. And, and, and part of that thought process was a type of, of, of mindset 
that would lean in the direction of idolizing or worshiping uh, angelic hosts. And here's the, the, the reality. What this psalm does is it pushes, us, it pushes back on that and says that we are not to uh, idolize the earth and we're not to worship angels, but rather the angels are to join in in worshiping the one who has created them. If you look at verse 5, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. The only one who rightfully um, receives our worship is the living God because he is the creator of all things. So the, the psalmist begins by encouraging the angelic hosts above to praise him because they are created beings as well. Secondly, he points to the heavenly bodies. Uh, if fallen men and women don't worship the angels, and some would say, I, I've never struggled with worshiping an angel. That's fine. Then the, the next uh, most obvious is that fallen humanity tends to turn um, the heavens into an idol, the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets. If you will, turn, turn back with me to Psalm 19 in your Bible. And here we kind of have the uh, psalm that helps us to rightfully interpret the encouragement here that creation is to join in in worshiping God. This will be a familiar passage to many of you, starting in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. And what we find here is ultimately we are not supposed to idolize the sun and the moon and the stars and think of them as though they were literally speaking words of praise and worship. Rather, we are to recognize the reality of the way that the cosmos, the, the heavens declare the glory of God, is by their mere existence. Now, they do exactly what God has called them to do by revealing His divine power and majesty in their creation. There really are two ways in which we can understand the heavens modeling worship for us. One is that the heavens worship God in a visible way. Uh, that is, there's not a secret worship. All of humanity can look to the heavens. If we go out tonight and we look up at the stars or uh, we consider the vastness of the universe, that speaks universally, whether someone has read the Bible or not, to the reality that God is to be worshipped. And when that happens, it's something that happens in a visible sense, not hidden in the inner parts. Secondly, we see that the worship of God in the sense of the cosmos is constant. It doesn't change. It doesn't ebb and flow. The, the creation declares the glory of God and causes us to express worship in a way that doesn't, uh, again, ebb and flow the way that our worship does. What we see in Psalm 148, He set them in their place forever 
and ever. As he established them forever and ever, he, had, he gave a decree and it shall not pass away. And the cosmos doesn't ever stop declaring the glory of God from generation to generation. And if you really think about the extent of that reality, it's pretty amazing in and of itself. The reality that the same sun that we look at is the sun that we find in the biblical narrative and so many generations have risen up and they've fallen and they've come and they've gone all in light of the creation that God has set in place to declare his might and his glory what a joy it is to consider that reality so having looked upward to the heavens and having called on the angels and the entire heavenly body to declare praise to God. The psalmist now looks downward to the earth and he calls on things uh, here below to worship and join in in the chorus. And here there are two uh, predominant entities. Look at verses 7 through 12. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word. Mountains and hills, fruit trees and all the cedars, beasts and all livestock, stock, creeping things and flying birds. There is here a reality, I think, of, of what we, we see is beginning, at the beginning of this psalm, the psalmist starts high with the angels and he moves towards the earth. Then in this particular passage, verses 7 through 10, I think I said 12, verses 7 through 10, we see the flow being one from the deeps and moving up into the pinnacle of creation. The psalmist looks at the depths of the oceans and he moves on to the lightning and the hail and the snow and, and, and then the fruit trees and cedars and mountains and all of the different animals. But then he concludes here in verses 12, 12 through 14 with the reality that human beings being part of that creation are to join in from every social position, every tribe, every nation, and to give praise to God. And that gives us a great reminder, I think, this evening of the reality of why we do missions in this church. Psalm 148 is a, is a great text if we want to contemplate why would we be engaged in missions, and it is the reality that missions exist. This is John Piper, not Jay Clatworthy. Missions exist because the worship of God does not in so many places. And so we engage to carry out the meaning of these words into all of creation, begging every person on this planet to praise God for who He is and what He has done. It's interesting. the way that Paul deals with the tendency, and again, think about this reality, that civilizations that have fallen, the Roman and the Greek societies that, that passed away, and you will have entire um, liberal arts programs dedicated to a kind of sociology and a study of why societies and their political spheres and those kinds of things ha have, have fallen away. And many of the answers will be man-centered and will they ultimately cease to exist uh, because of some political faction or some miscalculation of, of, um, of military judgment or, or whatever. But ultimately, friends, we know why every generation 
and civilization has passed away. And it is because in light of the fact that they should worship the triune God, they refuse. And instead of worshiping the triune God, they idolize the earth. Which is exactly what Paul is saying in the midst of those societies in his own day in Romans chapter 1 when he says in verses 22 and 23, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. We see that in our own generation in varied ways. It's a sad reality that in light of our fallen state, humanity tends to do one of two things with creation. Now creation in and of itself, remember, it has constantly and publicly declared the glory of God in the face of every generation. There is no excuse that we would not give all of our lives and every ounce of our being to worshiping the triune God. The the creation has not veiled His majesty. But we have. We have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And what men and women in their lost condition continually do is that we look at creation and we do one of two things. We either violate creation, uh, drawing from it whatever will benefit us and not caring about conserving and being wise stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And, And we see that in many ways in our society, or we tend to worship the creation, attributing to it creative powers, um, deifying the reality of of the the weather and all of those things, and not acknowledging the, the fact that behind creation and behind all of the storms and the seasons and, and all of the, the animals and all of the natural resources is a God who has given us this planet not for our own glory, but that we might worship Him because He is glorious. And so the psalmist here points to the reality of the animal creation, but then he moves on in verses 11 and 12, and in that climactic Uh, section of the text, he deals with the reality that we are made in the image of God and therefore we can know our Creator and we can worship Him rightly. Derek Kinder notes an important comparison between the worship of God by human beings and the worship of God by the heavenly bodies. He he says in verse 5, the celestial bodies are called to praise God simply by the fact of their existence. But in verse 13, man may praise Him consciously since He has revealed Himself. Similarly, God's glory in the natural world is the reign of the law. The regularity which invites us to search out His works. But among His people, His glory, is His redemptive love. That is, that ultimately what we see, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. And what we find in that verse is an implicit gospel that the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is before all things. So think about the categories here for a second. The angels, but we tend to, and we, I could 
in many different mystical religions, instead of us contemplating the reality that the angels give glory to God, we idolize them. And then we look at the heavens, and have you ever heard this? Well, I don't need the church. I I want someone to book, chapter, and verse me on that. It's not there. They will immediately follow it up with, I can spend time alone with God out in nature. Which is not, that's not untrue. But the fact of nature declaring the glory of God should direct you where? Back into the congregation with the redeemed of God. So instead of acknowledging the reality that creation drives us to be obedient worshipers of God in the congregation of God, the gathered worship of God, creation tends to turn into an idol as well. And then moving on from there, we find uh, the animal creation, which again is something that we see all throughout uh, history and even in our own modern day, different idols that are fashioned in the likeness of animals and they are worshipped. And so we come here to the, the idea and reality that he pivots to in, in verses um, 11 through 13 and really 14 to humanity, and we think, ah, well, humans never idolize other humans, right? Wrong. In fact, I would tell you that I think that's the most common idol there is. And you think, I don't, I don't idolize anyone else. I don't know what he's talking about. I've never struggled with that. You don't have to idolize someone out there. Stand in front of a mirror and you generally will find your greatest idol. Because that's what we do. We rob God of His glory instead of realizing that we were created and our lives are a reality for the sole purpose of bringing glory to Him. We live all of our lives in trajectory of thought thinking, now how do I have my... Well, one preacher put it this way. How can I have my best life now? The fact that in America... That can be one of the greatest selling books in Christendom tells you as a spiritual barometer where the church is. That our best life now wouldn't be repugnant and make us vomit as Christians tells us where our heart is. And it is that we think it's okay. Listen, we'll give Sundays to the Lord. We're just going to keep a little bit for us. So so, so part of the best life now, Jay, you're misunderstanding Joel Olstein and all of his magnificent exegesis. Because he's not telling you not to go to church, but just that the rest of your life would really be magnified around you receiving maximum joy. Friends, can I tell you this? Under the authority of the Word of God without any reservation, the only place that you will ever find lasting joy is not in this world, it's not in creation, it's not in angels, it's nothing in the heavenly host. It is only in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only by putting down our own idolatry of self that we ever come to the full full flowering of worshiping God and being satisfied in Him. And the final analysis, apart from God's grace, in drawing us, though, to faith in Jesus Christ, we all put ourselves in the place of God. In fact, I would tell you that I believe that if if, if, if you're... just beginning to study the Bible, or maybe if you've studied it for a long time, think through every narrative. And every narrative where a human being is involved, 
apart from God's miraculous intervention, every one of those characters somewhere in the narrative exalts themselves. Nebuchadnezzar did it. Adam and Eve did it. David, Solomon, Saul. Now you can go all throughout. Uh, uh, Peter, uh, on and on and on. I think Paul admits the reality of putting himself uh, first in, and, and sinning against the Lord in so many varied ways. We ultimately, far too often, put our own interests before the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Let me illustrate it just one more way. And, and I want this to... I want this to settle in and chill you to the quick. One of the conversations pastorally that's going on right now, and this really does, as, as, I, I, I had a friend post to Facebook about this controversy, and when I saw it, I laughed and thought, well, he's just being a fool and trying to get a bunch of people to pay attention to him. There's no way that this is an actual thing right now. And, and it all centers around whether or not on a Christmas morning we would cancel a service of worship. Now that may seem benign. And there have been a lot of, there's been in the past couple of weeks a lot of ink spilled and a lot of people saying, well, uh, for various logistical reasons, we just think it would be wise to cancel the service. But can I tell you what I think ultimately uh, this in the life of America spells out? That we believe that the worship service is designed for the people in the pew, not the one who is the maker, cre the, the creator and sustainer of all things. The reason why it is so casually and flippantly accepted by a vast number of congregations in America that we would cancel on Sunday morning, the Lord's Day. It's not ambiguous. It's not, even a, it's not even a stretch. It's not hard to get to, well should, we, should we, well, should we obey anything else God says? That here's the, here's, here's the, the ultimate outworking is I genuinely believe in that. And, and if you have a, a family where they're canceling their church, I'm not trying to throw stones at individuals outside of those that are making these decisions. The, the reality is that when you cancel a worship service and you give some sort of explanation being, well, people, they, they would just, they, it would be better that they're home with their families. You are declaring to all of creation what you believe about Sunday morning. Friends, we don't come in here on Sunday morning because of how we feel about worship. Do you remember that psalm that dealt with how we first and primarily have to feel to worship rightly? Like feeling driving the entire train? Do you remember that psalm? Me neither. Because it's not in there. The affections flow out of God's redemptive work throughout all of history and the fact that without any one of us doing a single thing, He is glorious and deserves our worship and praise. The reason we gather here is because He is due our worship. And our 
Health can fail, our finances can fail, our relationships can go in the wrong direction, our political sphere can crumble, America could dissolve. He's still on the throne and he still deserves to be worshipped. So the idea, just in case you're wondering where your pastor stands, that we would cancel a Lord's Day service like, it doesn't even, it, it, it's repugnant, it's ridiculous. Like, why would we, then, then when we come to, when we come to Easter Sunday, why isn't Easter canceled every year? Like, it makes absolutely no sense. Okay, I feel better I got that off my chest. Ultimately, what we see, though, throughout this psalm is the writer has been calling all of creation, right? Angels, heavenly uh, hosts and reality there in, in, in creative work, the animal uh, kingdom, the sea, all of that. And then he, he calls human beings broadly. Uh, all of mankind should give God praise. Uh, that is what the psalmist has been doing. And so then... He calls in verses 11 and 12, kings of the earth and all the people, princes and all the rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, worship God. What's he doing here? Well, he knows that kings and princes and people as a whole do not and will not worship God the way that they should. And so in the last verses, he pivots he knows. He's not unaware. He's not foolish as a theologian, the, the author of Psalm 148. He knows that the besetting problem of all of humanity is that they should worship God. It's not like we get to Romans chapter 1 and we finally realize, oh, human beings are idolatrous. No, 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 no. This is a theological reality all throughout Scripture. And so then, moving on from verses uh, 11 and 12, he pivots knowing the princes of the earth uh, and, and all the people, young and old, male and female, they refuse to glorify God. And so what is the last hope of displaying right worship before the throne of grace and in light in the, in the sight of all creation? It is you and I, beloved. It is those who are redeemed of God. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is to be exalted. His majesty is above all earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints. For the people of Israel who are near to Him, praise the Lord. That The word, and I think this is what happens when we read our Psalter. What does horn mean? Like what significance is that? And, and, and the answer is that it gives a, a biblical picture of strength. That the writer is probably thinking about the restoration of the strength of Israel after the weakness that they had known during their time of exile. It, it, it's, it's God taking His people out of exile in front of all of the nations and not displaying the, their goodness or their might, but His own goodness and glory. Leopold says, the destiny of Israel here is so important. And what God had recently done for His people in their restoration 
is of such vital importance to all nations and creatures that if they were to grasp what is involved here, they would be glad to add their praises to the praises of Israel. The picture here is this. That God alone brings us from captivity and exile, spiritually speaking, in our own lives. And He sets us free so that we worship Him rightly. And what the psalmist wants us to understand is in the question of who should worship. Far too often in the church, this is how we think. Everyone else, we want to reach them with the Gospel. They need to worship rightly. And when we can see those people out there brought to worshiping, then we'll be in a good place. But the psalmist starts out there, and he with just subtle precision keeps moving one step closer and closer and closer to you. Until he's kind of, have you ever had somebody when you're walking and you turn around and they are just right there? And you kind of, oh, how did that happen? And that's what's happening here in Psalm 148. He's squaring off with the redeemed of God, with Israel and with the church of God. And he's saying, listen, the only way, the last hope in creation for right worship is that you take it seriously. That the worship of this people matters for this generation for the glory of God. Why does worship matter so much? Why does it matter that we don't get drawn into a man-centered type of praising God where our felt needs come first? Because, friends, this is the only place, ultimately, the gathered of the redeemed of God under the Spirit of God where we will really worship to the glory of God. And Paul tells us that It is then that outsiders will come in and what will happen? They too will fall on their face realizing that God is at work among us. I think we need to sense the gravitas and that is also why there's a whole other rabbit trail here. I'm going to move on. Why it's so important that we don't cancel on a Sunday morning. We're celebrating the gift of of the second member of the Trinity taking on human flesh Cam to pay the sin penalty for wretches like you and I. And we would dare in the face of that withhold our praises and stay home? Friends, that borders on if it's not blatant blasphemy. We are to give God our praise because here is the reality. The angels aren't going to sing of their redemption. The heavens don't need a Savior. The animals, my dog, when somebody walks up to the door and knocks on the door, man, he almost comes through the mail slot wanting to get them. And it, 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 it makes them so frustrated. And I just go, that is exactly what the Lord made that dog for. To, to, to alert his master and to be on point. Creation has been subjected in a way to futility. But friends, when you, when you move past all of these other trajectories of the who of worship, who should be worshiping, it is only you and I 
that have the motivation to worship being our own redemption. That we were at one time alienated from God under His wrath, deserving of damnation. And because of His kindness and His grace, He removed the veil that was laying over our eyes spiritually and showed us the wonderments of Christ and the glory of who Jesus is and what He has done in dying and, and, and absorbing our penalty, the wrath that we were due. And so the, the real question, I think, then has to be this. How in the world would we ever, would we ever withhold our worship from the triune God in light of that? The audacity. Some people will say, yeah, but Jay, you don't understand. Times have changed. Things are different than they used to be. I know when your grandparents and when the church began in its inception, you know, people were at, when Calvin preached, he preached every day. We're just not there anymore. And sometimes, just to be practical, on a Lord's Day, we're going to cancel a service. Friends, things do change. And sadly, sometimes in the wrong direction. But if we're going to talk about chronology and how things are changing, let me just take us fast forward to the end. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10-11. Paul tells us here that there is a time established when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Are things changing and is our world rapidly different? Yes. Never negotiate away the right worship of God. In one iota, be people who are passionate and eager together. And not just, yes, we worship scattered but be eager for the gathering of the saints where you worship in spirit and truth to the glory of God in light of the fact that Christ is who He says that He is. Friends, everything is not going to terminate. Friends, if we understood the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ when we got home tonight and we looked under our Christmas tree, we would be so unimpressed with everything that's underneath it. And there would not be, kids, I'm not trying to steal your thunder. You, you enjoy your presence. But we wouldn't idolize all of the things of this earth. We would realize that human history does not terminate beneath a cedar tree. It terminates before the throne of grace. As we find in Revelation chapter 5, the people of God willingly, reverently, joyfully, expectantly, eternally pouring out their praise in these words, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. May that be our heart's cry as we gather together this Lord's Day, Christmas Day, to celebrate the One who has come to dwell with us. Would you pray with me?
Father God, what a joy it is to sing Christmas carols, but loose us from the deadness of singing out of rote tradition. And might we rejoice and declare your glory and majesty for the great things you have done. Might we come together this Sunday morning in light of the cross, in light of our redemption, in light of your majesty, in light of everything that you have declared from Genesis to Revelation, in light of the reality that this is not our home and one day we will stand before you and sing praises eternally forever and ever. We will finally be made new in the purest sense. We will glorify you and we will do and function the way that we were created to bring glory to your name. We long for that day. So let us not squander one of them worshiping here.